The mission of God is the glory of God's name. That should seem familiar to us. That was Pastor Steve's major point from the message last week. God's highest purpose is the praise of his glorious name. Indeed, the glory of God is the backdrop for all of scripture. From in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth through the new heavens and the new earth that are planned for our glorious future. God is the one who is supremely in charge over all creation and he is worthy to be praised. This morning we're gonna consider the Bible as portraying a tapestry divinely produced and as history unfolds, the character of God are revealed, woven against the background of his glorious majesty. The macro story of scripture is the revelation of God's holiness, power, and loving kindness as he makes himself known by unveiling his sovereign plan and demonstrating his covenant faithfulness and carrying it out. Israel's redemption from Egypt is a seminal event in history and God's eternal plan. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt is a phrase that God is gonna to use to identify himself throughout the Old Testament. And Passover points to God's redemptive work through the Messiah. As we approach one of the main pivot points in human history, we're going to, which is the Exodus from Egypt, let's step back and widen the lens and get the macro story of God's plan to remember how we got here in Exodus. So to set the frame for the Passover story, let's remember three significant moments in human history. The first timeline marker is creation. God begins with one couple, Adam and Eve, to begin the human story. God's supreme power is the green thread of our tapestry, and it's on display in creation. Psalm 19 tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God. On day six of creation, the high point of God's creative powers is demonstrated as he creates man and woman in his own image. And he places them in a perfect paradise. But then, tragically for us, man's sinfulness enters the world. It begins with listening to the serpent's seductive power, his whisper of doubt. Did God really say? And disbelief and disobedience soon sprout from the seed of doubt. Sin enters the world and death by sin. And now we see the red thread. This is God's sufficient grace woven into history as God covers the sins of our forebears. The purple thread represents God's sovereign plan. The creator of the universe promises to provide the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head, defeating the seducer of mankind, Satan. And one day a perfect man will come and reverse the curse brought on the earth by sin. Timeline marker number two is the flood. 
And God starts over again with a family. Human wickedness spreads like a viral pandemic. Everyone is infected. Within just nine generations, think of it, nine generations from Adam, the world is filled with violence and corruption. I wonder what it would look like to live in a world filled with violence and corruption. We don't really have to wonder, do we? That's the world we live in. The result in Noah's day is that the Holy One, who is of purer eyes than to behold iniquity, looks down at his creation and is offended. God's surpassing holiness is our blue thread. And with wickedness abounding on the earth, the Creator regrets having even made mankind. God's awesome power, his divine justice are displayed as he destroys the earth with a global flood. Of note, in Genesis 7, God tells Noah, in seven days I'm going to flood the earth with rain for 40 days and 40 nights. And this is very much a parallel to what we see in the plagues, where God predicts what is, he's going to do in judgment. And God's grace is on display as Noah's family of eight are spared in the ark. Our orange thread in the tapestry is God's faithfulness to his promises. And it's assured when he establishes his covenant with Noah. It's the first one recorded in scripture. God's sovereign plan is then to be carried out through the line of Noah's son, Shem. Timeline marker three, and this is where we're gonna spend most of our time this morning, is God's covenant with Abram to build a nation. Genesis 11 begins with a display of God's power as God confounds the languages of humanity at the Tower of Babel. This is maybe six generations after God destroyed the flood, or destroyed the world with Noah's flood. And God's sovereign plan is to build a people for his own name. And he's about to put it into motion. In Genesis 11, we see the family tree of Abram. He's 10 generations after Noah and only 19 after Adam. And by the way, the passage that we're looking at, Genesis 12 and 15, uh, God hasn't yet changed Abram's name to Abraham, but that's who we're talking about when we say Abram. In Genesis 12, 1 to 3, God calls Abram out of Ur, modern-day eastern Iraq, to the land that he's going to show him. And he promises him three things. First, there are the personal blessings. He promises him a land. He promises him a great nation and a great name. But in addition to the personal blessings, and each of us here today could recount personal blessings that God's given to us, but in addition to the personal blessings, there's a global blessing. In Genesis 12:3. in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Think of it, all the families of the earth, a global blessing. It's why some have considered Genesis 12, 1 to 3, the hinge pin of history. To underscore the seriousness of what God has in store, we read of his second covenant with an individual in Genesis 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield and your reward shall be very great. Who of us would not want assurance from the Lord like that? 
Here's how Abram responds, verse two of chapter 15. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. So instead of thanking the Lord for his assurance or for what he's already done or what he's going to do, Abram focuses on what God hasn't done. Not only does Abram not have a great nation, he doesn't even have son number one at this point. And recall that just two chapters previously, God had told him that your descendants will be as the dust of the earth. Essentially, <laughs> Abram responds to God, about that promise of kids beyond number, I'm not seeing that. Uh, it's true, I'm wealthy, thanks very much, but if I die tonight, my servant Eliezer gets all my stuff. I don't have a child to inherit my things, my fortune. And aren't we glad that scripture records the struggles of our heroes of our faith? Uh, they reflect our own human weakness. Uh, we might expect at this point for God to say, well, I guess I need to choose somebody else to carry out my plan then. But God instead demonstrates his grace. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward the heavens and number the stars if you're able to number them. So shall your offspring be. Don't that God doesn't say, oh, I've got great news for you, Abram. Your wife Sarah is already conceived. No, instead he sends him out on a counting mission. We don't know how many stars he might have counted that night. But how many more children would Abram have when he woke up the next morning than when he went to bed? Zero. And that's what makes the next verse so astonishing. Verse six, Abram believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness. And so here's the Old Testament formula for salvation. Faith in the Lord equals righteousness. In Romans chapter four, Paul calls Abram the father of faith to all who believe because he trusts in the Lord. Not because he never had doubts, but despite his circumstances, he believed. It's a wonderful text, but the next part is what we wanna focus on as Abram is reminded of God's faithfulness he continues the conversation. God says, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Where in the previous verses, the great nation was what was in focus. Here, it's the land. In Genesis 15, Abram's already in Canaan, but he's a nomad, he's dwelling in tents. He doesn't own any piece of property at this point. So how does the man justified by faith in verse six respond in verse eight? He said, oh Lord God, how do I know that I shall possess it? Can we not relate to this as believers? Even with all the assurances of God, sometimes we have questions. The good news is Abram goes to God with this question the even better news is that God doesn't give up on Abram. He doesn't cast him away because his faith is weak. So how does God reassure 
Abram now. He instructs him to gather three animals and two birds in preparation for instituting the ancient Near East's most solemn kind of contract. In contrast with the rainbow covenant, which God established, Hebrew word is mekayem, established the covenant, here he cuts karat, a covenant. It's a blood covenant with Abram as he, the animals are literally cut in two. This both reinforces the seriousness of the promise and it reassures the still childless Abram. Pick up the story in verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain. Know for certain. Aren't you glad that we have a know for certain God? This idea that the creator created the universe and then stepped back to watch, wondering what was gonna unfold, is not the God of the Bible. The Lord is about to clue Abram in on what is to happen centuries in the future. Know for certain that your offspring here again is reassurance of that great nation. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be, will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. What kind of assurance is this to a man who has questions about the future? To Abram's how do I know this for sure, God? Question, God's assurance is that in the future, Abram's descendants are gonna go down to a land that is not theirs, and therefore, 400 years, they're gonna suffer. Now, what kind of assurance is this? Well, it's the kind that reminds us that God is sovereign over all the affairs of life. It's the kind of assurance that informs us that God already has dates marked on his celestial calendar those are written in ink. He's going to fulfill what he promises. It's also the kind of assurance that reminds us that included in God's plan for his people are difficult times. Indeed, it's in the most trying of circumstances that God's greatest glory is on display. God demonstrates that he is greater than all of our trials. And notice, God doesn't end his assurance with Abram's descendants still in bondage. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And you can insert the 10 plagues of Egypt right here. And afterward, they shall come out with great possession. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So old age is promised to Abram, wealth for his descendants. God's timetable is unveiled. And now this covenant is going to be enacted. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. Now, to be clear, when a blood covenant was enacted, uh, the two parties would walk between the split carcass, holding hands and saying something like, may the Lord do to me, as we've just done to these animals, and more also, if I don't uphold my end of the bargain. 
you can slice, dice, and ice me if I renege on my promise. I think we'd agree that's a serious, serious commitment. We've noted that Abram has slaughtered three animals and killed two birds. There's a lot of bloodshed here, and that underscores the seriousness of this covenant. But we saw in verse 12 that Abram is in a deep trance. Only God passes between the animals. Now, the divine presence is manifested here, not as a burning bush or the pillar of fire that we see in Exodus, but as a smoking fire pot and this flaming torch. Only God passes between the pieces, obligating himself. Abram is a beneficiary of the covenant, for sure, but he is not a participant in it. And this is how we know that the land covenant, the title deed to this piece of property, is unconditional for Abram. And as further evidence over God's sovereignty of the affairs of mankind, we're reminded elsewhere in Scripture that God sets the boundaries of all the nations. Included in this covenant are specific future promises for the promised land. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. The northern border of the promised land is all the way up to the Euphrates River. And then God goes on and he lists the nations who are going to be dispossessed from Canaan by the Israelites in the conquest. This is how we know that when Moses and the Hebrew people exodus exit from Egypt, they're going to go to Canaan and not Canada. The God who is faithful to his promises will provide a son of promise in Abram's old age. Isaac's son Jacob will become the father of the 12 sons. He's the recipient of the birthright and the blessings that come along with it. And then God will change Jacob's name to Israel. When the land of Canaan suffers severe famine, Jacob will move his family to Egypt. There God already had Joseph in place, one of the brothers, so that he would preserve the foundation of what would become the nation of Israel. Sovereignty over human history is one of the key ways in which the God of Israel is contrasted to all the pagan gods. Here's what God says in Isaiah. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. And that gets us to timeline marker number four, the Exodus, where God preserves and redeems a nation. And we may be certain that the Hebrews had questions, where is God during those years of oppression and enslavement, but the Lord had not abandoned his people. As Pastor Steve reminded us in Exodus chapter two, the Lord heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abram, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God identifies himself at the burning bush as, I am the Lord your God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the God of Israel. And just as he had promised to Abram centuries earlier, he is setting in motion his plan of redemption right on time. God's holiness and his power are fully on display in the story of Passover as he triumphs over all the gods of Egypt. Human sinfulness is woven into the fabric of the tapestry as well, illustrated by Pharaoh's hardened heart. 
The ruler of Egypt plainly states, I do not know the Lord, and God says six times to Pharaoh that you may know that I am the Lord. The Egyptians also don't know the Lord, and God says three times to them that you may know. But he also says six times to the Hebrews, the Jewish people, that you may know that I am the Lord. God will say through Hosea, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. But God's enduring love for the Jewish people, Jeremiah 31.3, is a great reason for us to share the message of salvation with our Jewish friends. In the context of rebellious hearts, God's mercy and grace are wonderfully demonstrated as he redeems his people. Because of his covenant faithfulness, God's sovereign plan is being put into effect to the praise and glory of his great name on all the tapestry of his glorious majesty. So Psalmist instructs us, shout for joy to God all the earth, sing the glory of his name, give to him glorious praise. And as we remember from Romans, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever.